Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, welcome to our Tax Tuesday here for June 7th. I'm Elliot Thomas, Manager of Tax Advisors here at Anderson. And right now I'm filling in for our partner, uh, Toby Mathis. And uh, this is uh, our Vice President of Professional Services, Jeff, who I'm sure you're all used to seeing. Yes. Howdy. (laughs) All right. Well, welcome. And as usual, we'll we'll be going through our questions for you guys, uh, trying to, I guess, as we say, bring tax knowledge to the masses. It's kind of our motto here that Toby uh, put into, into play. So, uh, we will get started here right away. And first of all, the rules. Uh, ask your questions via the, the Q&A system uh, through our Zoom feature. That's uh, where we have a whole uh, whole group of uh, CPAs and EAs to help answer uh, questions. The chat section itself will be more for uh, just off comments and things like that that you can make. But uh, please put your Q&As through the Q&A section and they will answer as many of those as they can. If we can't get to it, then typically we will uh, throw it into our, our pool of questions for the Platinum Tax Group to, to answer as well. So we'll try and get through all the questions we can. If you should ever need to submit a question, uh, you can email questions to taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com. And that's where we pick out, uh, we get to as many as we can through the show, but we're only able to talk about a few on the show, but uh, behind the scenes, they get thrown through our Platinum portal. Uh, If you need a detailed response, uh, again, you'll want to become a Platinum uh, client so that we can submit them through there or a tax client. Uh, And the whole idea is just to quickly give you through through some fun and educational uh, background about tax. And uh, we want to help and educate as much as we can. And we all know what chat is really for throwing shade at Toby. Yeah. But he's not here today, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, rules. There are no rules here. All right. I rent my personal residence and my home office uh, is my primary place of business for my S-Corp. Am I a good candidate to take advantage of Section 288 deduction, or does that fact pattern dis- disqualify me? Second question, is it possible to minimize taxes by selling the C-Corp, which holds property via a 1031 exchange, and then form an LLC to buy the replacement property? Number three, I just bought a a lake cabin in Wisconsin where we will be renting it out as VRBO as much as possible, but also using it for some personal use for our family. Will I need to create a new LLC to hold the cabin in? Or And and how much of it can I write off uh, given we're unsure about how much it will be rented out, especially the first year? Good question. Popular question lately. Next, uh, my husband and I are on Medicare, but we have businesses. Are we too old to set up and contribute to an HSA that'd be a health savings account? Uh, next, if you have if you set up a holding company as an S corp, do you have to pay yourself a salary even though you are not actively running the business? If so, when do you have to start? That would be paying the salary. The last on this page, when completing the purchase of a lease option, how is the basis determined? If the property will be split part and, and will be split partially sold, I assume partially kept. How would you recommend it be held? Held. Next group, I receive income from two rental properties: one single family house, another from a studio at my residence. Would my income from these qualify for the IRS QBI 20% deduction, also known as 199A? Are capital gains from stock trades inside an IRA taxable at the end of the year? Is there any limit on how long a person should keep tax records? That's always kind of a popular one. We are moving from Washington, a community property state, to Utah, which is not a community property state. 
Do we need to change our LLCs in Alaska and Wyoming to single member entities in order to keep them disregarded? Very good question there. How long do you have to keep your primary house a rental in order to 1031 exchange it into something else instead of selling it and paying capital gains on the excess over 250,000 since I'm single? The old uh, 121 exclusion there. And then that is it. So just uh, real quick before we get started, some ways to connect social media. We have our YouTube. Uh, we can listen to our pro, pro, the podcast at andersonadvisors.com slash podcasts. And we also have uh, watch replays for your Platinum Portal. Uh, another thing uh, that I was reminded of, we have another tax and asset protection coming up June 18th. Uh, so not this weekend. I believe that'd be next weekend. Mm-hmm. So all uh, everyone will be want to be able to take advantage of that. I'm not sure who's doing it, but uh, I know Clint will probably be there. I don't know if Toby will be or not, but um, always a good idea to get into that and see. Even if you've seen it before, it's good in there to get in there and, and get refresher on what's new and things like that. Uh, so that's getting June 18th. So if I was reading the questions, I thank Elliot for doing that. We'd probably still be back on page two. So, uh. <laughs> I'll slow down when we get to the actual questions here a little bit. But I was just excited. All right. First question of, I believe we're doing 11 today. I rent my personal residence and my home office is my primary place of business for my S-Corp. Am I a good candidate to take advantage of the Section 280A deduction or does the fact pattern disqualify me? Let's say you, Jeff. So l- let's look at factors. You're, you're renting the property. You're not paying mortgage or anything on that. That really doesn't matter. It's still your primary residence. You have control of it. You can use it for what you want. And we kind of had a question like this the other day about what if it's not my rental property? What if it's community property in the apartment complex? And that gets into very murky waters. Mm-hmm. So, but in this case, it's your rental property or it's your property that you're renting. You have a home office on it. Neither one of those disqualify you from taking 280A. So you can get the quotes for, for doing a 280A meeting, make sure they're reasonable for what you're doing. You want to make sure you take minutes, have other people there besides yourself. You can't have a meeting if you're the only one there. And it really needs to be discussed. What I mean, what do you typically tell people? Strategic stuff or... Well, first of all, a lot really comes out of this question. It's a fantastic question because we talk about that home office, but let's remember in our heads, we're, we're distinguishing that from the 280-day use. Mm-hmm. As I explained to people, let's say that you have that home office in the back the back bedroom, and, and but your 280 is going to be where, you, as Jeff points out, you have other people come for the meeting. That might be up in the kitchen, family room, uh, basement, what have you, where you'd have people congregate. And so you're able to take advantage of both, uh, an administrative office reimbursement and the 280A. Now, as far as reasonableness and things like that, that certainly goes to the, the, the quotes that you get. You know, Don't get something that's too high. It's got to be reasonable. And remember, if your business didn't make any money, well, probably it's not reasonable that we got you know the 10,000 square foot ballroom or something like right. that as a quote. So and we've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of get the eraser out on that one. I always tell clients, I strongly suggest that they have over third parties that, you know, who don't live in the house. A lot of our clients do real estate. That probably is the easiest game in the world. If you have any friends, family members, colleagues, you know, anyone you know that is a realtor, have them come over and talk business about real estate. Uh, You know, anybody who's had a real property or lived in one knows there's something about repairs. So if you have a family member, a colleague again, or acquaintance that does, uh, is a contractor, have them come over and talk about the latest in you know, repairs or what have you. So I really recommend you have other people over. <clears throat> I don't know that it's necessarily an absolute, but it, it's a really, really good idea. We really recommend that you have other people over. One thing I want to say about the home office, 
and the 280A is you can't use your home office for the meeting. Correct. Because you're already being reimbursed for that. So the S corporation or corporation or whoever's, in this case, it is an S corporation, the S corporation is not going to reimburse you for the home office and then rent the home office from you. Yeah. So you need to keep them in separate areas. And that's fairly easy to do. Uh, you got people who are using the kitchen, the living room, such and such. Your office probably in a second bedroom or something like that. Exactly right. And just keep the areas separate and you should be good to go. So directly to the question, no, you're not disqualified. Uh, you are a good candidate to take advantage of 288 and still have the administrative office reimbursement. It's a really a, a powerful, powerful punch for your S corporation and uh, just another thing that gives it more value. Yep. Great question. All right. Number two. We need to slow down. We're running about 10 minutes ahead of schedule. <laughs> well, we're well below Toby's three hour. <laughs> to- Toby and I tend to run a little long on the initial questions. I don't know why. All right, go ahead. All right. So number two, is it possible to minimize taxes by selling the C-Corp, which holds the property via 1031 exchange, and then form an LLC to buy the replacement property? Now, Jeff, this one kind of confused me because I wasn't exactly sure the fact pattern we're trying to get across here, but I have some ideas on it. Do you have any thoughts? Well, you and I did talk about this a little, and generally <laughs> the answer is no. Do you have something different? I, I come up with something? I, well, it's, again, it, it depends on what we're really getting to here because I had a lot of ideas that came through because I wasn't really sure what the question was. But ultimately, if you're going to have a property, appreciable real estate, a rental, what have you in a secret, first of all, we never recommend that to begin with. You're only going to put them in there for flipping property, which lends us to what with a 1031? You can't do 1031 on flipping property. It's considered inventory, so you can't do it that. Yeah. So if we had that property in there because it was inventory, well, then it's a no-go. We can't do the 1031, as Jeff just pointed out. But what if it was a rental property? A C-Corp certainly entitled to do a 1031. We now know after the uh, what is it, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2018 that we can only do it with a real property. It used to be in the day when, you know, Jeff and I are older. You could do it with other things, but now it's just real property. So, yeah. <laughs> so if it's in the C corporation. Nice. Uh, then you know we we can do it with real property at ten thirty one. But here's a trick: if you're trying to do it amongst yourself, a, a, a related party, and I think that's maybe where we're getting here with forming this LLC to buy the replacement property. You know, now that I keep reading this question, every time I read it, I see it a little bit differently. So, if we did a ten thirty one relinquished property in the C corp. It wasn't rent. It wasn't inventory, so it was just uh, a rental. And then you got replacement property put into a discard LLC. That's questionable because you have to have that same title rule with the, the 1031. Most QIs, I think, are going to say you have to put it in the name of the C corp. Later on, you might be able to move it down to a discard LLC. But keep in mind, we don't really recommend having appreciable assets in a C corp to begin with. So here's why I don't think that works. As you said, the LLC. Uh, disregarded LLC, it has to be disregarded to that corporation. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, that so is. if you, if you sell it from the corp and buy it back in this LLC that's disregarded to the corporation and you're trying to dissolve the corporation, you have succeeded in not doing anything. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to try. You're, you're going to blow your 1031. Exchange. Yeah. You don't want to dissolve the C corp. Yeah. You, these things have to stay. These entities have to continue on. Another reason not to do a 1031, as uh, often, you know, if you've ever been through our tax and asset uh, group or listen to Toby here on Tax Tuesday, he often talks about this. One of the main reasons to ever do a 1031 is if you're going to swim in those waters, hold it till you die. Because the whole idea is to get that stepped up basis for your heirs so they can redepreciate it over time. 
really not a whole good of a lot of good reason to do a 1031 unless you're holding it forever. So as Jeff points out, if we're ever going to dissolve that C Corp and we did do a 1031, well, we didn't do a whole lot for ourselves by doing that. Yeah, as soon as you dissolve this dissolve the C Corp, you're gonna to have to recognize all the gain on that property, including the replacement property. Yeah. So anything you deferred by the using the 1031, as soon as you make that do that dissolution, mm-hmm. you gotta recognize that gain. Yeah, so I'm just really scared about the principle that we have a, a appreciable real estate in our C corp. Maybe it was intended to be a flip, which in cases when we started this question, you know, we can't do. So I got some. I'm a little worried about where this question is going and what where we're trying to what our end goal is here. So, but hopefully all that we just threw out will help a little bit on that. All right, next question number three. I just bought a lake cabin in Wisconsin where we will be renting it out as VRBO as much as possible, but also using it personally for our family. Will I need to create a new LLC to hold the cabin in? And how much of it can I write off given we're unsure of how much will be rented out, especially this first year? Thoughts on that, Jeffrey? Uh, VRBO is like uh, Airbnb. It's vacation rental by owner. It's actually an entity like Airbnb that works with people who have cabins, vacation property, stuff like that. So the, the First thing is your losses are going to be limited to your income. Well, let's go back and talk about person, the personal use. If your personal use exceeds 14 days or 10% of the rental time, uh, it's considered vacation property to you. And vacation property goes back to what I was saying is you can't take losses beyond the income. So if you make $10,000 on this property and have $15,000 of losses, those 5,000 losses get suspended, I believe. That's correct. They carry over to next year. So that's part of the problem. So you'd have to rent it out for at least 140 days to be able to use it for two weeks or 70 days to rent it or to use it personally for a week. So this is one reason I don't like mixed-use property because it does have built-in limitations on it. It does. And there's a lot, uh, actually more than what we could go into in this particular setting where they get into the real details of what is a personal use day, what is a fair market rental day. If you had family, extended family, even I believe that came in and just was even there for 10 minutes, that's considered a you know, personal use day. So those add up really fast. And if you, again, have the greater of 14 days or over 10% of the number of days that it was rented at fair market value, then it becomes vacation. You're going to be limited on your deductions. And there is actually an ordering system that the code has for how you take those deductions. It's going to be qualified interest first, uh, property taxes, if there's any casualty losses, and then you get into some operational like advertising commissions, et cetera. Finally, you get down to other uh, like depreciation, things like that. But all those are going to be limited by the amount of uh, total rental income we have. So it's, you know, you can, I don't want to discourage your family from enjoying the place, but it always cause problems for us. And and I always get the hint that when I hear people talking about this, that they're kind of tempted to see if they could get away with using it more than what the code says. And, and this is really a case when you have a vacation home that a cost segregation does not pay off. Yeah, no, I wouldn't do that one here. You, you may, normally for a short-term rental, you may be able to write off 30% of the cost of the place, maybe more for like a cabin in the woods or something like that. However, since there's that limitation on how much loss you can take, cost segregation is going to fail here. Yeah, but maybe after we got over the initial year, first enjoyment of using it for some personal use, second year, you know, it's kind of like the boat, you know, was it the favorite days of the day you bought it and the day you sold it kind of thing? 
maybe then you, you're not using it so much the second year. Maybe we look at the cost seg then, you know, uh, you know, reach out to us, see if we can, we can look at, you know, tear, tear the situation apart, see what's, what's going to be in your best interest. Mm-hmm. Next number four. All right. My husband and I are on Medicare, but have businesses. Are we too old to set up and contribute to an HSA? You know, I looked into this and everything I read was so wishy-washy. My stuff wasn't. <laughs> it's was very straightforward. Uh, basically, if you are taking part in Medicare A, B, or D, I think part A you have to take when you turn 65. Yeah, I don't. Otherwise, there's severe penalties for not getting on Medicare. Yeah, that's a whole, yeah, that, that, that part I didn't look into. But, but I do know, uh, first of all, there isn't an age or a limit on an HSA. However, if you are, as Jeff points out, if you're taking Medicare A, B, or I thought it was CND, but if you're taking any of that, uh, then we can't do an HSA anymore. So Correct. if we are at Medicare already, we probably would not be able to contribute to an HSA. But there isn't a listed age limit to it, other than if you're, well, you're required to, as Jeff points out. And why is it like this? Because Congress hates older people like me and you. Uh, I'm, I'm getting into that club. <laughs> yeah, that you know, I, I, in doing some research today about reasonable wage, which is coming up here, I, I saw some of the statistics of how many billions were missed because people uh, were not uh, paying reasonable wage on their S corporations back, and that was back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, you know, we'll have to see where that goes. With the I believe we have a question on that. We do. That's what I was researching it. <laughs> All right, next. Uh, if you set up a holding company as an S-Corp, do you have to pay yourself a salary even though you are not actively running the business? If so, when do you have to start? Wow, that was amazing. Right? I didn't even see that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I found this question to be interesting because mm-hmm. it was kind of unexpected. So you have this S-Corporation. You're not actively managing it. Uh, let's say it's a restaurant and you got you got a manager for mm-hmm. Do you have to pay yourself a salary? I don't think you do because it's passive income. Typically, is the way we look at that. I think you might have a problem. Or you might have the interest of the IRS because you're probably going to take distributions. And usually, that's one of the key flags they look at. If you take distributions out of an S-corp, you're generally speaking, you have to pay yourself a reasonable wage. If it's all passive, I don't know that you would have that need to. I don't know that you'd want to avoid that, though, you might have reasons why you'd want a salary so you could contribute to retirement plans or something mm-hmm. like that. Also, depending on the nature of the income coming in the S corporation, it could be it was all so something of the nature like portfolio or what we call separately stated items on an S corporation. For those of you who don't know an S corp very well, you could have income that comes on to the S corporation return, but you're not allowed, you are not allowed, but it's not income of the S corp. It actually goes through a K-1 onto their 1040, the individual in a different place. That's certainly, I, I wouldn't see how you would be responsible for a reasonable wage if that's all you had, separately stated uh, income. But back to Jeff's point, if, it's at, if, you're, if you're passive about it, I don't know that you would need to have a, a wage. Um, you know. So when IRS, and you're right, in the early 2000s, they were really hitting this up to like 2008. They were really hitting this hard. Not so much anymore because they don't want to open up two different title cases. But what I was getting at, trying to get at, in a roundabout way, is that the tests really look at what you're doing for that S corporation and what you should be paying yourself for that S corporation. And if that's nothing, you have a bookkeeper, you have a manager, you're just you're just the investor. Cash and checks. Yeah, yeah. you're just cash and yeah. checks. Mm-hmm. 
you certainly have a good argument for not paying a reasonable salary. Uh, but like I said, you might get the attention of the IRS if they were, if they were looking at that more because they see a distribution, they see no salary. But I think you have a good argument. Well, look, I don't manage. You know, Why would I pay myself a wage? Now, if you have no employees and no third parties working the stuff, they're going to determine that you are managing the company. Yeah, you have to have a paid manager, someone that you set up. If I had my S corporation and I was completely hands off, uh, I'd have to pay like Jeff or somebody to be the manager of it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not like Jeff, but uh, yeah, probably Toby, <laughs> not Jeff. <laughs> All right. Next, uh, when completing the purchase of a lease option, how is the basis determined? If the property will be split or partially sold, how would you recommend it be held? I thought this was a really intriguing question because a lot of people with options, first of all, they maybe don't understand what's all really going on. Is there actually a sale or not a sale? Any thoughts on that? Generally, IRS has been saying if you got a lease option, it's probably a sale. Mm-hmm. They're going to look at the totality of the facts, but if you have these lease payments that are above normal rent, mm-hmm. And you know, and you take the the cost of those over time, and this amount of this option payment, whatever it is, if those kind of add up to what the fair market value of the property is today, when we sign the agreement, IRS is going to say, look, you effectively sold it. There was an economic sell there, so you're going to have to recognize taxable income, you know, and and maybe maybe you can get it by with an installment sale, perhaps. Yes. On, but uh, you know, that's then it's sold. Well, then what happens with the basis? Well, it's going to be dependent on our sales prices today. That's what we would have the basis. And if we're split, partially sold, maybe, and I don't know what the other part would, maybe we kept the other part, like maybe it was a duplex? Well, yeah. Uh, well, going back to the uh, the lease option payment that you paid, IRS has generally considered that, that you're doing an installment sale, and that is your down payment on the property. And then they will bifurc- bifurcate that payment as to what it is. But yeah, I, yeah, you're right. That's usually going to fall on the basis somewhere. Yeah, we, we're going to throw that amount, you know, in there to find determine what the well that'd be for the purchaser. Excuse me, that would be their basis. Your basis would be what you originally your adjusted basis when you really originally purchased. Plus, uh, well, they did say the purchase of the lease option. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, I guess they're complete. Okay, the purchase. So your purchase will be based on fair market value of, of, of the value of the house that you, you got it at, and. Um, and then any improvements or depreciation over time would change that. But the split part will be split and partially sold. I guess if you're selling off part of it, like I said, the only thing that came to mind was a duplex situation or something. Mm-hmm. Well, then, yeah, you would just, I think the best word is bifurcate. You would s- allocate, ratio out uh, those amounts. Accordingly. So would you have to do a division of parcel? I mean, I, I think so. I, I believe, you know, because usually in a, a duplex, it is, uh, they usually do have their separate tenants, you know, and I've heard that in some places that they have kind of a different, I don't know the right term for it, but they, they have a different um, ability to separate out if you have like a four story building and, and each floor is separately contained mm-hmm. autonomous areas that can be done. And I have seen that in certain, in certain towns. And I, I honestly don't know if that's a state and local thing. I would imagine it is. So you'd have to kind of check to see what the local rules are. But I, I think certainly you'd have to have some kind of designation that splits out these areas. Yeah, typically I've seen when they're duplexes side by side, some some places it's all one property. Some places they're each separate properties. So I think that would first need to be determined because I don't think you could sell half your property if it's part of one parcel. Yeah, we're going to have to bring in the real estate attorneys to, to figure out are the local 
boards that determine that type yeah. of thing. But yeah, for and that is very much a state and local uh, specific issue. So as we often say, you know, here to say, well, 50 different states, 50 different answers. So uh, although fortunately, most of them kind of typically follow one or two of the similar patterns, but you'd have to look at, see what's appropriate for your area. Now you start to talk about a lease option if you're the seller, if you're the landlord mm-hmm. and you receive a lease option. How are you treating that? So if I'm the one selling it? Yes. Yeah, I'm going to, again, I'm going to have to go back and look to see if it is actual sale, actually a sale, which typically as Jeff and I were saying it would be. So then I'm going to look at my original basis, again, plus any improvements, mm-hmm. less any depreciation. It gets me my adjusted basis. I subtract that from the sales price. If I'm getting the payments over time, we now we're looking at an installment sell situation where I only have to recognize a little bit of gain for each payment I receive. We do that on a ratio, uh, the sales ratio. Okay, so let's look at something else. I give you a $5,000 lease option. I never follow through with it. How is that treated tax-wise to me and how is it treated tax-wise to you? Well, you mean you never, oh, you never, you never I, I never ended up, I, I gave you the $5,000 non-refundable lease option. But we, yet, yet we never complete the sale. Yeah. You know, I, I suppose I would have to give it back. Well, it depends on what the, the agreement yeah, is. Let's, agreement. let's assume it's non-refundable. Non-refundable. I think I'd still have to call that income. Uh, whether it's capital gains or not, I'd have to, I don't know about that, but it certainly would be income to me because I'm retaining it. I just got free money. I don't know. So so that sounds like you said before that a portion of it would be taxable income under the installment sale rules. Yeah. But you're saying if the sale never happens and you get to keep the money, that's income to you. Yeah. I'm going to say hundred percent is income okay. to you there. Yeah. Uh, as far as your side of it, I don't know if you can call it just a lost deal or something like that of that nature. I'm not sure if you could get away with a you know, maybe a uh, short-term capital loss type thing. It's probably going to be lost money that you're never going to be able to deduct or collect or anything. Yeah, so kind of a tough situation. All right. I receive income from two rental properties, one a single family house, another from a studio at my residence. Would my income from these qualify for the IRS QBI, Qualified Business Income Deduction, 20% uh, deduction, uh, otherwise known as 199A? Yes. It could. It could. <laughs> uh, the single-family residents definitely would, if you're making money, of course. What about the 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 studio? Well, both of them have to be considered a trade or business, and that's the key. What the big debate when this came out was: is rental activity a trade or business? And that had been resolved sometime before. Mm-hmm. The question was whether or not that still was applicable to 199A back in 18, and it looks like it was. One could argue you have a hard problem or maybe a tougher time arguing that it's a trader business if you had just one rental. But uh, most practitioners that I know would still consider it as such. Mm-hmm. Back to the, the studio residence, uh, you're going to have to run it like a business, keep it separate, you know, have all your detailed documents. But yeah, you, you could, if, it's, if you treat it as a trader business, especially because you've already set a precedence of having another rental unit. I think then you'd probably be in, uh, have a stronger argument for it. Yeah. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is there's a an aggregation rule that applies to 199A, the, the QBI deduction. That is, if my single family residence makes me $5,000 in a year, but I lose $6,000 on the studio, I have to combine those and end up with a $1,000 loss, and I get no deduction for that. So, so the QBI deduction is based on the aggregation of, of all trades and businesses. So if I have 
Toby's Pizza Shop and my single family rental, we've seen it where rentals are typically run in the negative. Mm-hmm. They run at losses, tax losses. If I have income in the pizza shop and a loss in my single family rental, they have to offset each other first. And I could possibly not get any QBI deduction, 20% deduction from my pizza place because of my other losses. Yeah, it's it's an ongoing tally, almost like our passive loss rules. And to just point on the aggregation, that's not, please do not confuse that with aggregation for real estate professional purposes. That's a whole different ballgame, but an unfortunate use of the same terms. That's that's our tax code. They do that a lot. Right? Exactly. <laughs> a safe harbor is another one they love to throw out their left or right, which they do have the safe harbor for this as well. Passive uh, income is one that means something for Section 469, something different for mm-hmm. foreign income. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, completely different. And if you ever go out there trying to research some of this stuff and you say passive income, you're going to get things from financial institutions talking about interest and, you know, things that you, uh, you know, that you don't actively work at, but that's different than what the IRS is talking about with passive income often. And there they call that portfolio income. So vocabulary becomes kind of critical. So let's say that I aggregate all my trades and businesses and I have a $2,000 loss in 2020. I go to do my taxes in 21, and I have uh, $5,000 of income in my trades or business. So does that mean I get a $1,000 deduction? No, because that prior year loss carries forward and gets aggregated with all your trades and businesses once again. There's a sheet that should follow on your 1040. And if you don't have it, probably your tax preparer does on their copy. And that's going to track all these carryovers. Uh, your traditional ones are net operating losses, uh, capital gains or capital losses carryover. And now we have this whole sheet dedicated to 199A purposes of carryover or just that purpose. So one thing I wanted to bring up while we're talking about QBI, uh, Section 199A, the 20% deduction, whatever you want to call it. And going back to the S-corp salary mm-hmm. subject, this is really a balancing act. You've heard Toby say the one rule is calculate, calculate, calculate. Because by paying myself a salary, I'm lowering that QBI deduction because that QBI deduction is based on the income from, say, my S-corporation. Uh, if I made $100,000 in my S corporation, I'm going to get a $20,000 deduction. Yep. Okay. Just checking my math. But uh, so, you know, more salary, you have less taxable income, but then, uh, you know, you're, it's going to affect your QBI. So, well, I'm sorry, you know, you're going to add employment taxes and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's a very difficult thing to find that, that, that lap, you know, that, that perfect area where the two meet. Right. Because we're also talking about, you mentioned retirement plans oh, earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you got to have compensation to do retirement plans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have medical insurance being supplemented mm-hmm. by your S corporation, which an S corporation can do. That's one medical expense they can deduct, but comes back to you as salary. And so you really have to look at this 20% deduction. Like, am I paying myself enough? Am I not paying myself so I can get a bigger deduction mm-hmm. and not it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah, you almost need one of those, what is it, the new quantum computers that they're trying to, you know, to get to, to put all these factors in and, and get it right. It's not easy. And, and one more thing about the reasonable salary. If if my company makes $100,000 and I don't pay myself salary, I have 100000 of taxable income, correct? And we're going to ignore those 199A, the 20% mm-hmm. deduction. If I pay myself $30,000 in wages and ignore payroll taxes, 
I'm still going to have $100,000 of income on my W on my 1040. Uh-huh. I'm going to have 70,000 from the S corp, $30,000 and and wages. Uh-huh. Why this matters to the IRS is they're chasing that small percentage of payroll taxes. They want you to pay Social Security. They want you to pay Medicare. They want you to pay federal taxes. Well, you're going to pay the federal taxes regardless. Yeah, the Fed taxes, state income taxes, that is. Those are coming. But yeah, the IRS, you know, and and in fairness to them, they're doing what, you know, they've been mandated to do, go out there and and shore up uh, retirement. So when everybody's worrying about retirement, well, maybe if people pay their reasonable wage in their S-corps, we, I don't know how long that far that would move the needle down, but it would have been adding to it. So I paid a reasonable wage. <laughs> Get off my back. I actually have friends I tell about this, and they're just like, yeah, you know what? I don't do the returns, but you know, I, don't, I don't think I need to pay that much of a reasonable wage. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's something that we always have to wrestle with, especially when you throw in that 199A. But that's a good point. If you're my friend and you ask me to do your tax return, you're no longer my friend. <laughs> I'm not doing it. No, stay away from family and friends for those. <laughs> All right. Uh, next, are capital gains from stocks traded inside an IRA taxable at the end of the year? I get this question pretty yeah. frequently. It's kind of neat that we get this because you know people are thinking they're worried about capital gains, but they're forgetting it's in a retirement account. So what happens? Nothing. Exactly right. Because if your stock can go up, 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 Bitcoin, you know, two years ago, 80,000, all that gain, if it was in your retirement plan, there's no tax uh, until you retire. You, you know, even if you sell it, uh, there's no gain. It grows tax-free until you distribute it to yourself. That's where the hammer comes down with taxes. So not a problem here at all uh, from, from gains as long as you haven't distributed anything out of your plan. Yeah, real-life capital gains mean nothing inside of an IRA, uh, any kind of QRP. It also means nothing inside a nonprofit. Now, the one disadvantage, and it's just a slight disadvantage, is capital gains to you personally, if they're long-term capital gains, get taxed at a much lower percentage. When you pull all these capital gains out of your IRA, you're pulling at your regular tax rate, mm-hmm. not the lower capital gains rate. So and it's kind of a trade-off. And it is always that, That's as far as tax planning, that's always that big issue. Do I think rates are going to be higher when I retire or lower? Mm-hmm. Uh, Toby gets hit with that. I know all the time because I, I, I see it on you know tax-wise and all that and here with Jeff on Tax Tuesday. Uh, you know, should I do a Roth or whatever? It, you're, all, you're always playing that game of do I think taxes are going to be higher or not? And we don't have that crystal ball. But I, I believe, you know, Toby often talks about he's done a lot of research and cracked a lot of numbers. Often, you know, if you're if you're older, there's probably no use to going into the Roth. You know, if you're trying to do a, 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 distri- a, a conversion mm-hmm. into a Roth, it's probably not worth it because you have to make that back up. You know, that amount of tax you're paying. So, just some thoughts. But directly to the question, if you just have gains and you haven't taken anything out of your IRA, that all grows tax free until you take it out later on in retirement. So, what is the one time that I'm going to have to pay tax on in my IRA? Oh. Well, okay. <laughs> if we do different types of uh, uh, investing where maybe we invested in something that we talk about capital gains here. Well, what if it's something that didn't create capital gains? What if it created ordinary active income, like a real business? Mm-hmm. Take Toby's famous pizza shop. <laughs> if, if you invest in something like that, like that, an active business, you could have what's called uh, unrelated business taxable income or UBIT sometimes, depending on if you turn the INT around. Mm-hmm. There you're going to get hit with heavy taxes. And it it's... The, the, the brackets aren't much higher than regular. It's just that they rise really fast. So by like $10,000 of income, you're up 40% tax bracket or something. 
and it's critical. And the whole idea is to punish those who invest in that kind of thing because the IRS needs a level playing field or Congress wants a level playing field between Toby's Pizza Shop that's out in the private world and one that's uh, someone who's investing in one through their retirement plan. So I have a couple investments in my portfolio, not my retirement portfolio, my regular portfolio, Sunoco Limited Partnership, uh, All-American Pipeline, and a couple others. These are almost all publicly traded partnerships, and they usually have limited partnership in their name. Now, I'm not giving investment advice on this. They, they tend to pay pretty decent dividends because of the nature of the business, uh, but they also generate exactly what you said. They generate ordinary income, sometimes ordinary losses, which is not a big deal. But if I have this, we'll take Sunoco in my trading account or my IRA account, and it's generating ordinary income because these limited partnerships send out K-1s even though they're traded on the stock exchange. I have to report that ordinary income as unrelated business income, which gets taxed. What's a percentage on that? Well, again, it is a bracketed, but it grows really fast. So mm-hmm. it, 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 uh, it's, it's on, I think, uh, what we call trust rates. And I don't know the exact brackets, but I believe the highest is 40% or 37%, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's up there. But again, it takes very little time to get up there, like $10,000, $15,000 or something like that grows very fast. So uh, my advice is if you have anything in your retirement accounts that say limited partnership, I know you bought it on the New York Stock Exchange or whatever, Kinder Morgan's another one. You may want to dump those puppies. Yeah, unless they're uh, making a ton of money. You know, the, If you're making a ton of money and getting taxed for it, well, you're still gaining. Yeah. You know, because uh, I, don't, I don't think people even realize what they bought until they've already bought them. How often do I kind of say that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's the one time uh, you may have to pay tax out of your IRA. The other time is the qualified, uh, the interest one. Yeah, uh, yeah, you, 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 unrelated debt finance income, which is really considered a subset of UBITs, Mm -hmm. but it's directly related related to when you have debt involved. Can I go into that? Further? Yeah, from what I've seen, it's where disagree if if you think I'm wrong. No. I'm getting income from this entity that was paid for by financing. So they distribute. They went out and got a loan for hundred million dollars, and then paid out distributions to their partners or shareholders with that money. That income is becomes taxable. Yeah, the amount it's 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 a ratio between the amount for the project that was financed with cash from the investment and how much was from debt, and you have this ratio. And the amount, let's say you get a hundred dollars of income, and it's fifty. Well, we'll say it's 60, 40, 60 cash, forty debt. Well, then forty percent of that income or forty dollars will be subject to this mm-hmm. UDFI, which is that same super accelerating tax bracket. With forty dollars, you're already taxed at some crazy amount, like twenty five percent or something like that. Uh, takes a little little time to get up there. And so I, I believe if you look through and you do enough research, and I don't know why anybody would, but I think I think uh, UDFI is really just a subset of UBIT. It's just that UBIT's the most popular one. You don't hear as much about the finance, but happens a lot, especially with the clients in our realm who might be going into investments in uh, where they're you know, real estate, where they've taken on a lot of debt to build maybe a syndication or something like that. And they did it with an IRA. They did the investment there. Could be an issue, something to be aware of. 
Uh, and UDIF only affects IRAs, not 401ks, correct? My understanding is that you can get in these very narrow circuits where you might get hit with it in, in uh, like, say, a solo 401k, but it's it's far more unlikely that you run in the UDFI in there, just different rules, different kind of thing going on with a solo 401k, but the IRA is the one that really gets hammered with it typically. If, if you're investing in your typical common stock, preferred stock, bonds, if you're doing options, all, all of that's going to be non-taxable while in the IRA. Mm. Uh, so all, all that typical trading stuff, it's just a few of the, we'll call them the weird items mm-hmm. that can get you into a bit of trouble. Yeah. So again, coming all the way back around, capital gains, typically no problem in your IRA. We want those. They just grow and grow and grow tax-free unless you get into some kind of investment that has unrelated debt unrelated debt, taxable income or uh, unrelated debt finance income, or you might get some tax on it and at a very high rate. Next, uh, is there any limit on how long a person should keep tax records? I love this one. What say you? Everyone disagrees with me. I'll just say this up front. But first of all, you have to understand the real crux of this question is how long do you think you need to hold them? Generally, you're going to hear three years because that's typically how far the IRS would normally go back for audit. But that's not always the case, is it? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> so if you have over, what is it, 25% of uh, gross un- understatement of your income, which could be from things like just the income itself, you understated, or maybe you overstated basis on a sale uh, on something, then they can go back six years. Or in the case of you're really bad, you have fraud, there isn't any limit. So if you really want an answer to this, I don't think there's any time that you could, the IRS will say, yeah, just throw your tax records away. But as a rule of thumb, people usually say three to five years. I usually say seven years. All the statutes that use the six years or all of the that use the six-year statute limitations, they're all considered tax crimes. You're going to probably have somebody from CI, the criminal investigation team, or uh, maybe even the fraud team come visit you. you know, the, the Madoff people <laughs> yeah. coming your way. Um, <laughs> that orange jumpsuit. If, if it's just a substantial underpayment of tax, you're probably not going to be in any kind of criminal trouble. There will be a substantial fine, usually 10% of the understatement. But in a day's up, up to $5,000 or, or 10% of the understatement. So yeah. it could eat up a lot of money. But in a day's world of digital, how hard is it to keep you know tax records for the last 1,000 years on a little drive? You know, So I don't see it as that big of a deal. You know, If you have paper records, we'll scan them or whatever. I, I think you want to keep them for a while because what what are you going to defend yourself with? Not that you know you went out and committed fraud, but you know. So let's say I keep my last seven tax returns, and I get and they think I've been up to no good, and they come and audit me for 2015. Now let's go a little more. back in your your crazy days. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I think I was up to no good. So all but all I've kept is my tax returns. Does that do me any good? If I haven't kept all my backup, my substantiation, I mean, it becomes difficult for you. But then again, the the on it's on their side to say to to show that something was done wrong in the return. So they have the burden. But mm-hmm. if they reach that burden, you have nothing to defend yourself with. So right. it's a it's a it's a tricky business. But really, this is for your criminal attorney. <laughs> yeah, just keep just keeping your tax returns really does you no good if you don't keep the backup for it. If you don't keep your W-2s, your 1099s, everything you use to come up with your expenses and so forth. Yeah. 
So yeah, not exactly. It's, it's kind of an it depends answer. But I think seven years, you'd probably be looking really good unless you knew you did something wrong. It would be very difficult for you to get into a situation where you, they, they call fraud on you and you had no idea. You know, usually you have an idea if you've done something that bad, you kind of know you went down the wrong path. So then maybe you want to keep your records in case you have to defend yourself. If they're looking past seven years, don't worry about it because you can't keep your tax returns in Leavenworth from what I read. Remember, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> can't take him and use the staples to break out. <laughs> but this goes back to one of the things we're always preaching about substantiation. Mm. You don't have to prove it to your tax preparer what your deduction is necessarily, but you may have to prove it to IRS. So always be able to substantiate everything you want to deduct. Don't worry about substantiating your income because IRS will do that for you. Yeah, I often tell clients, I'm like, like, I'm not the one you have to convince. Okay, you know, uh, but you know, a preparer will require that you are stating that you do have backup for anything that they put on the return. So then it becomes the taxpayer's burden and responsibility. You know what's funny about this question is IRS just got busted for destroying what 30 million um, (laughs) backup uh, items. A lot. (laughs) I mean, that is a shred job right there. I mean, that that puts the White House to shame most of you. They got nothing on Arthur Anderson. (laughs) No. Oh man, I mean, that what kind of shredder does that? All right, next. We are moving from Washington, a community property state, to Utah, which is not a community property state. Do we need to change our LLCs in Alaska and Wyoming to single member entities in order to keep them disregarded? What say you, Jeff? Let's see if our answers line up. They may not. I'm of the opinion that once I move out of that community property state into Utah, it's no longer community property. So my LLC will have to file as a partnership if both me and my wife own that, that LLC. Correct. So it becomes an issue potentially. We run into this a lot when we're talking about 1031s. I did a 1031 back in a community property state, and now I move with my spouse into a non-community property state, turning something into a partnership, all of a sudden destroying our 1031 because you're not in the same title if you come into a partnership. So... In this situation, if you want to keep it a single member, probably just in one of the spouses off it so that there's just one spouse on these. So it keeps it disregarded when you move into the non-community property state. So your spouse has, you and your spouse have unlimited gifting to each other. So they could gift their interest or you could gift your interest to them uh, to keep this so you would only have one owner. You can also throw in a little estate planning to make sure they get their share of it or they Uh get it if you should pass or make them a beneficiary or something like that. Um, Does the the, the Alaska one, they they have a few strange entities in Alaska. I don't know if strange is a word, but strange compared to other. The thing that's neat about Alaska, well, there's a lot of great things. I I actually love Alaska. I went there a couple of times, but um, they have. I guess a quasi where you can kind of pick whether you want community property or not uh, when you when you're there, and so that's really unique. Uh, as far as different type of entities, you know, I'm sure they have some different things, but you know, strictly to the LLCs, you're going to look to the the IRS is even if it's a kind of a different type of entity, the IRS is going to have a rule for how they're going to tax it, and that's what matters. Mm-hmm. You know, and if there's two people on it, more than one member in it, it can't be disregarded once you leave that community property state. Now, one advantage of turning this into a partnership is if you're planning on growing your number mm-hmm. of properties you hold, 
you'd rather have this pro- these properties in a partnership because it gets reported on page two of Schedule E rather than page one of Schedule E for mm-hmm. rental properties. And the banks tend to give you more credit for the income generated from those properties. That's right. You get more more lendable, you're more lendable or a higher amount that can be lent for having a partnership. Uh, generally, Clint would beat us both. If we didn't mention Clint, Clint talks about this all the time in, in tax and asset protection. The whole purpose for the partner, well, not the whole purpose, but one of the great attributes of the partnership is that lenders will give you more. Uh, of course, they have their own rules, their own limitations of what they can lend, but that's certainly one of them, something they'll, they'll look into. So if you can get that more of that more of that money to work with, better investments, more growth, it's just a win-win. So what are some of the disadvantages of moving from Washington to Utah? Now I'm in a non-community property state. You're going to have to pay for another tax return. Yeah. It's not going to change your regist- annual registration fees. Probably not with the states, no. Because they're registered in Alaska and Wyoming, you're going to have to already. pay the same thing already. That's correct, yeah. But you're going to, again, have another tax return. And in the case of the 1031, it could have issues. If you have a, already a property that was already went through a 1031, that might be an issue. But it's the same entity, though, isn't it? Well, not when it becomes a partnership. That's the whole problem. A partnership LLC is not the same as the take that same jettison one of the partners and becomes disregarded. They're not the same thing. In the oh, no, I'm saying if we take husband and wife, disregarded entity, and we move them, and now they're now a partnership because of the rules. Same entity, same EIN. It's just the tax filing is now a partnership. The problem is that it's the partnership, in the case of the 1031, that owns the property, not the individuals in a disregarded LLC. So, no, you still have an issue. Uh, you got to be very careful with oh, 1031. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's one of those things that's not easy but can be worked with. Uh, you can have some tenants in common arrangements and things like that. You know, they're a little more advanced or it's a topic for another time, I should say. But there are things that can be done to work with it. So the, the sky's not falling if we're in this situation. It's just, we need to work it out properly. And sometimes we need to work it out a little bit in advance. Yes. Uh, you know, that's always the key. Try and get it done first early before you do anything drastic, like move to a community property state. I <laughs> uh, so I think that's it for that one. Tax law is hard. Yeah, taxes are hard just in general. Uh, how long do you have to keep your primary house, a rental, in order to do a 1031 exchange, uh, to exchange it into something else instead of selling it and paying capital gains on the excess 250000 since I'm single? So I think we have to look at 121 first on this, mm-hmm. maybe. Just get an idea what that even means. Any ideas of what that is? Section 121 says you have to have held it for two of the last five years. So he mentions the two hundred fifty thousand dollar exclusions that goes along with one hundred twenty or one hundred twenty one section one twenty one. So it sounds like he's going to turn this into a rental. And I don't know what do you usually say when you're asked this. What we're trying to do here is take advantage of both one twenty one and ten thirty one. And as Jeff just laid all the groundwork there, one twenty one says that you have to have it to the last five years of not just use but ownership as a primary residence. So. Let's just say we have our house and uh, um, and this individual had used it as their primary house for two of the last five years. And now they want to get some kind of 1031 going. Well, they can't do it at that moment you know, because a 1031, as Jeff always has to remind me, is only for a property that's been put in a trader business. And we don't have that here. It's their personal house. But let's say they rent it out, as they mentioned here in the question. So now they're going to rent it out. Let's say they rent it out you know, for a year or two. But how long do they have to rent it out? Nobody knows. It's not in the code. You're going to hire you. You ask 100 different people, you get 100 different answers. 
Typically, a lot of the more conservative answers say maybe two years of rentals. Some will say, and I've heard Toby say this, it just has to be a trader business. And so that might be a shorter period of time. Now, I'm not going to put words in Toby's mouth, but there isn't anything on the books to tell us. And you just have to prove that it's a trader business. But let's just say it is a year, maybe two years that you hold it. Then, because you still have the, the 121 aspect that you have had it as a personal residence two of the last five years, you can take off 250000 or exclude 250000 in capital gains, and then you 1031 the rest of uh, you know, the calculation that will have to be done on that, and you'll be able to defer the rest of the capital gains. Here's my opinion of this, and it's not quite as conservative, but I, I do agree. I, I like the one-year holding period as a rental property, but I do not want to see primary residence, rental property sale in the same tax year. Yeah, no. That, yeah. They're just asking for trouble at that point. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I think, yeah, that's... So try and have it a year, you know, uh, of, of solid rental income showing on your on your return. And and might be a good idea that you do have rental income. Don't just say it was available for rent. I think you really do want it showing that it was rented. Even if you have rental income, say in 2021... And some in 2022, all the IRS sees is that you've rented it out in two separate years. Mm-hmm. Unless they look further, but they, they probably won't. Yeah. So a lot of it's perception. Right? We're, we're not trying to get around the rules. No. Because as you said, there are no rules for this. Yeah. Uh, there's no guidelines. There's, there's no rule for reasonable wage on S corporations that we started all the way back in the beginning on this. So sometimes it's gray area. It all depends whether your judge had a good day that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the, the tax, uh, or the, the auditor. <laughs> but yes, this is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Another thing we sometimes suggest, I'm going to go with the S-Corp. Mm-hmm. You sell the property to your S-Corporation. Now, you're going to have to recognize the gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can 1031 it. The S-Corporation can turn, wait, 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 I'm doing something wrong here. Well, down the line, the, 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 the 10, we wouldn't do a 1031 right now, but you can sell your S-Corporation in order to, if you really wanted to keep that house, and still recognize the two hundred fifty thousand here, but you, as Jeff pointed out, you got to pay the taxable gain up front, even if you're being paid by the S corp for the house on installment. If you sell it to your S corporation, it pays you back. You got to recognize all the gain in the year that you had that yeah. sale because it's a related party. So we we can do installments as far as you receive income over time, but you have to recognize all the gain in the case where it's a related party, like uh, you selling it to your S corporation. Down the line, though, you could do a ten thirty one exchange. But the benefit of the S-Corp, uh, what it does uh, is that it gives the S-Corp stepped-up basis right. to fair market value, and you can do all this magic with depreciation there, cost seg, bonus depreciation. So, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Right now, if Toby was here, he'd be looking at me like I got three eyes. Uh, <laughs> if you wanted to defer all the gain, not pay any gain in the current year of sale, you need to do the 121 and the 1031. You need to do the the home exclude primary residence exclusion and the like kind of exchange. Yeah, no S corp deferral. Right. Yeah, yeah. So how long? Again, original question here: How long do they have to keep it as a rental enough to show that it was a real estate trader business? And there isn't anything that will tell us. Well-intended, very educated tax people will tell you different things on that. Um, you know, I've heard anywhere from six months to a year to two years. There just isn't anything definitive out there. So let me ask you this, and I know we're running up against time. If I turn my house into a rental, but I only offer a six-month lease and then sell it when that lease is up, do you feel like that's evidence that I intended to sell this house right away anyway? 
I mean, yeah, if I was, if I was, you know, it depends what side you're arguing. I'm going to argue that, yes, that is exact evidence that you had every intent of doing all this, you know, but you'd have to come back with a counter argument. Well, yeah, I was just running it, you know, and then, then during that time period, I decided to sell. So it becomes a facts and circumstances thing, which you never really want to get into unless you have a lot of facts and a lot of circumstances, you know, that are in your favor. So, uh, you know, it's it's really easy to, to sit here and try and, you know, ask these questions, but they're very difficult to answer because there's so much that can be, and as Jeff pointed out, it depends on what kind of day the judge had, you know, so a lot of factors that go into that being under the circumstances, you know, so. I, 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 I frankly like to think about when we're answering questions like this, that I am always subject to audit. The percentages may be very low right now, but I I don't know that I want to play those odds. Yeah, you don't want to, yeah, you never want to get into that conversation. Well, I I think it's a low chance of audit. That's not the reason to do something tax-wise. We want to keep within the rules so we can all sleep at night and, uh, and not do anything crazy. But you didn't do anything wrong if you just read it in six months. It's just that you may have an uphill argument. Yeah, if... Anytime you're pushing the envelope, that doesn't mean you're wrong. You just need to make sure you have an argument mm-hmm. to go along with that. They call it passing the laugh test. Doesn't mean you're win, but at least you can show it wasn't, you didn't have a fraudulent intent. Mm-hmm. So again, thank you for your time. Thank you for joining. Uh, hopefully we'll have, uh, I don't know if Toby will be back for the next Tax Tuesday or not. In two weeks I or not. don't know. Well, anyway. I, I'm I betting it might be me and Elliot again. Oh boy. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, if you have questions, please email them at taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com or visit us at andersonadvisors.com. Uh, last reminder, uh, June 18th, I believe it is, the tax and asset protection coming at you from Anderson. And so be sure and look into that. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 